death awareness can sometimes be you know, the bitter pill that you take to prepare you for the you know the sweet drink afterwards it's to to level you so that the gospel can build you back up again to clear away the rocks that might otherwise keep the seeds of the gospel from going deep into your heart you got to have bad news before the good news seems good Friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm thankful you're here to join in on today's conversation with pastor and author Matthew McCullough. In today's episode, Matt and I talk about his book, Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Matthew McCullough earned his PhD from Vanderbilt University and serves as pastor of Trinity Church in Nashville, Tennessee. He is the author of The Cross of War and writes occasionally for Nine Marks and the Gospel Coalition. Hey there, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Well, Christine, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Been looking forward to it. I was so excited to read your book. It's called Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope, because it's a topic that really hits home for me. So before we dive into our conversation today, would you mind taking a few moments to share about the book and explain why it was important for you to write it? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, it hits home for me too, uh, but not in the way that most people seem to expect. One of the questions that I often get in talking about the book is, you know, what experience did you have in your life? Some sort of traumatic loss, some the death of somebody close to you, near-death experience of your own that made you interested in this subject. And what I have to always answer is that actually, I, I don't have any experiences like that yet. By God's grace, so far, I've been healthy. Uh, my wife and children have been healthy. Uh, my immediate family has, has been healthy. Uh, I haven't had that kind of traumatic losses many of my friends have had to, to live through. Um, so the book doesn't come from that kind of personal experience. But that actually speaks directly to what the book is really about. What I'm trying to do in the book is to show that death is an inevitable end for every human life. It isn't uh, a, a tragic, unexpected happening that only occurs for people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time or get the, the, the wrong diagnosis, have the wrong gene code. It's not like that. And so the book is actually trying to help bring death awareness to people who don't yet know that they need it. And it's something that became more and more important to me through a couple of different streams of influence in my life. One was studying in graduate school. I was researching American religious history. That was my first professional life before becoming a pastor. And I spent a good bit of time studying the Puritans uh, who settled in North America and had such a huge influence on um, American life in, in many ways. And one of the things I noticed as I got to know them better was just how prominently death featured in their view of the world and in their ministries. So uh, they talked of death often, and not only did they talk of it, they called their people to think about it often. They used it in their sermon applications. They filled their churchyards with tombstones calling on people to pay attention to death. And it was something really central to them as part of their spirituality that affected how they saw Jesus. And it was it was difficult to miss just how different their way of thinking was from 
what was normal for me and 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 the culture that I live in. So that was one stream. And then soon after grad school, becoming a pastor and and preaching verse by verse expositionally through books of the Bible, I began to notice more than I ever had before just how often death comes up in the scriptures. And not just as a backdrop problem that makes Jesus understandable for people. Death has its own play uh, in the scriptures alongside of sin and eternal judgment, that the problem of physical death, the temporariness of life, and what that does to the things that we love and enjoy is a problem Jesus came to resolve. So I kept seeing that come up over and over in, as I'm just preaching verse by verse through the scriptures. And as I would go there as a pastor trying to help the people I'm preaching to understand this passage and how it works, I began to realize just how off the map this view, this perspective was for my friends that I'm that I'm preaching to. So the feedback I was getting was surprise and also a lot of like positive affirmation that this is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And so uh, over the years, over probably three or four years, the project took shape. It wasn't a, uh, oh, I had this aha moment and pitched and got a contract and had to finish it on a deadline. It was much more organic than that. It was cobbling together usable material through through my ministry and the research that I'd done that at some point I just realized, I, I think I've got enough. I think this could be helpful to, to more people and, and decided to go for it. That's probably a lot more into the, uh, info than you wanted, Christine, but there's, no. a, there's a little taste of it. Yeah, no, I think that's really super helpful. And I love that you mentioned your study of the Puritans. And I was so excited because over the holiday break, I had the opportunity to visit historic Jamestown in Virginia. Yeah. For those who aren't familiar, Jamestown is the site of the first permanent English settlement in America. And there were a group of men traveled overseas and officially landed on the island in May 16. I was intrigued to find that among the archaeological finds at the Jamestown Museum was a gold signet ring featuring a skull and the Latin phrase memento mori, which means remember thy death on it. And if you're interested in seeing a picture of the ring, click on the show notes in the episode description and it will be there on the webpage for you. But what fascinated me was that this kind of ring was worn to remind the owner of the shortness of his life to keep, yeah, to keep the reality of death always in view. And I just had to, I put myself in his shoes. Imagine putting that ring on every day, taking it off every night. Uh, You wrote actually in your book that the title of your book is derived from this time-honored Christian reflection, Remember Death. Will you talk a bit about this tradition and why or how it was so well practiced in generations past? I guess tradition is the right word for it. I That's the word I've used in the introduction setting it up, but I don't want to communicate that it was more uh, rigid or uniform than what it actually was. I think the theme of mortality is a biblical theme that Christians in years past have just been better maybe than we are of, about picking up on. And so from that perspective came a whole host of ways of trying to keep that perspective always in front of us. So if you look back in the medieval Christian history, you'll find a lot of works of art and uh, of all different sorts that are putting this in front of people. And in the Puritan period, it's all through the sermons. It's on the gravestones that, that people would have walked through past to get into their worship every week. And then things like what you've mentioned, this ring. I mean, yeah, that was a pretty common practice for someone to have something around their neck or on their finger or on their desk. Um, many people had a, 
there's some some works of art that refer to little mini skulls that some folks would set on their desk like a paperweight that mm-hmm. you'd see as you worked and uh, you know that's really off-putting to us and and maybe maybe I guess you could argue that it's a little bit over the top I don't know I'm <laughs> I'm certainly not writing to suggest people put skulls on their desk but I will say that above my desk is a kind of chalk rubbing of a Puritan headstone that includes those words, um, as many of them did, with the, uh, the memento mori, which means remember death, and fugit hora, which means the hour comes, the hour flees, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then a picture of an hourglass underneath a skull. That was a real common, uh, real common iconography for, for them. And I think that a couple of things contributed to that. One was that, again, that they, they thought it was important. They thought that this is a way to know the difference between God and yourself and to know why you need Jesus so badly. So, so there was a, a biblical reason for putting this in front of people. But I think they had some advantages over our time for embracing this perspective. And one reason it was so well-practiced, I think, is that they just had a lot harder time than we do avoiding death. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't pretend in the way we're able to that death is somebody else's problem because of infant mortality and death and childbirth and the difficulty of controlling disease that had basically been eradicated now. Many of these diseases that would just devastate whole towns back then have basically been wiped out now. For all of these different reasons, death was everywhere. It happened in your home. It happened to your kids. It happened to your spouse. And it was in your, again, I mentioned this already, but it was in your churchyards on the way into the on the way into worship every Sunday you're passing it so because it was everywhere and because it was happening to such a wide range of ages the fragility of human life was just more obvious to them than it is to us and so the perspective was easier I think to hold on to well in light of how previous generations viewed experienced and remembered death on a daily basis what is it about the 21st century culture that has progressively and quite effectively shoved death out of our consciousness I think that's a complicated question I do not pretend to know all the answers to it all the way the the, the most important factors that answer it I um I don't but I do I do have a couple of things that I think are really important that are unique to our time and place. I think about it as factors that make it possible to shove death out of sight and mm-hmm. out of mind, mm-hmm. and then factors that make us want to shove death out of sight and out of mind. So in other words, we've got some cultural factors that make it possible to do what no one else has been able to do before us. And then and then that the, the space that these cultural realities have opened up for us is a space we have claimed because we don't want to think about it. So, so let, me, let me say a little bit more about those things. Mm-hmm. So the cultural factors in play now are that modern medicine has been a tremendous success. I mean, thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. The common grace of emergency room care, of vaccination, of preventative nutritional medicine, I mean, uh, uh, all up and down the line, modern medicine has helped to extend mortality rates back to double the, the, the lifespan that it was 100 years ago, that was expected 100 years ago. Um, and that's worldwide. That's not just in the West. So now death is something that surprises us because we're used to things being curable. Mm-hmm. We're used to doctors having the right specialty to, to, to make the procedure work, or we're used to medicines being out there that can push back whatever it is we're dealing with. Now, on top of that, on top of the success that modern medicine has had, modern medicine has sort of taken over death as its own purview so that it's, death is most likely to happen in medical facilities that are outside the normal places that we live and work. So where 300 years ago, 
most deaths were happening in the home, you know, where you live and eat and sleep. Right. Uh, now most deaths are happening in these bizarre worlds that are f completely foreign to us, that are cordoned off by all sorts of red tape, and that are places that most of us rarely visit unless we have to. Mm -hmm. So death is happening later and later in life, allow and making it easier to, to just say, I'll think about that later. And it's happening in places that we don't often see, so we don't have to look at it very much. That's the those are the factors that are unique to our culture that have made it possible to shove death away. And I think the reason we do, the reason we use that space and we claim it and, and and avoid the subject is that death is just absolutely terrible to think about. It is a threat to everything that matters to us. It is legitimately sorrowful and awful. So I think that it makes sense that we would want to fill our days with things that entertain us, with things that feel meaningful to us, with people that we that we care about and enjoy to be around. And right. I, I think that makes sense. I don't think it's wise, but I think it makes sense. Then how do you think this death avoidance negatively impacts our daily lives? Well, I think that the reason that it affects our daily lives is that there's a, there's, a, there's a disease that we've got underneath the surface that has symptoms that we are not diagnosing correctly. When you're not thinking about death, you may not recognize the, what, what one writer calls the many faces of death that you're going to experience in your life that you'll put other labels on. And I think that if we're not paying attention to the underlying cause, then the stuff we do to try to get rid of the symptoms is just not going to be useful, not going to be effective, and not nearly as effective as, as Jesus would be. There's a writer who talks about the many faces of death, and some of his examples include things like the fact that time takes away everything that you love, that good things just don't last, that Christmas comes and it's here and you're excited about it, but then it's over and it's not coming back and no other Christmas will be exactly like the one you just had. And you learn to expect that in life and to dread the end of good things. But what we often miss is that that's actually one of death's signatures, that we are trapped in time with death as the end for each of us and that these these little losses are all pointing to that big one without knowing that that's what we're dealing with without having that label to put on the experience of everyday loss we won't be able to see the relevance of Jesus to those little losses I mean another example would be this one's really near to me and to my experience of, of every day I in in my work you know, I'm so driven to succeed, even as a, you know, even as someone who's been a believer a long time and, and I think has biblical labels for knowing the idolatry that's going on in my heart and understands why I'm so often disappointed in, um, in how things go. Uh, I still struggle with it. It's still an everyday battle. And what I won't always realize unless I work at it is that behind that everyday battle is the fact of death looming over me, threatening to wipe out everything I do, mm. making me anxious about whether or not what I do will really matter over the long term. I, I think that's actually maybe even not the best way to say it. I think that that's there sometimes, but I think it's just more often a kind of malaise, a kind of dis low-grade disappointment with how things go, with how well I perform, that comes from the fact that no one's gonna, no matter how well it goes, no one's going to remember it. It's never going to be good enough work to justify my life mm -hmm. or to make it last. Death is behind that, my attempt to overcome it through what I do. And one of my favorite books um, is a Pulitzer Prize winner called The Denial of Death by a psychologist named Ernest Becker. And he talked a lot about um, about this, this problem of death for work, that behind our relentless activity is this 
unspoken, often unacknowledged drive to live forever. Mm-hmm. And he talks about our work as immortality projects. <laughs> that just really resonates with me. I think that's exactly what I'm doing in my flesh. Right. And it is always going to fail because there is no way to push death back through what I do. When I don't have death awareness to tell me, okay, that's why I feel this way about work, then it's going to be harder and harder for me to connect Jesus to my experience of work and the futility of it and to allow Christ and the hope that I have in him to reframe what my goals are for my work. So those are just a couple examples. There are plenty, plenty more that we could go down, but... Right. And, you know, even building on what you were just saying, there's a part in your introduction that I'll read for uh, for the listeners real fast that really expands upon that point. You write, to know Jesus should be to know joy. Yet isn't it true that our joy in life is often checked by pride, fear, envy, futility, dissatisfaction, and a host of other cares? I argue that an honest awareness of death puts these enemies of joy in their proper place so that in turn, the victory of Jesus can shine in its proper light. And I just thought that was so insightful just to really try to connect the dots. How does death awareness actually impact our daily life? Because at this point, most of us are thinking, no, it doesn't. (laughs) I don't want to think about that. The whole point of what I'm trying to do is to pretend like that's not a problem I need to deal with right now. And if anyone suggests otherwise, that makes me extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) Or uh, and even in the book, you talk about how morbid today's culture views these types of conversations. Yeah, sure. And so I just really appreciate that you continue to point us back and say, look, this kind of conversation is biblical. Not only is it biblical, it's imperative to the way that we are able to find that surprising path to living hope, as you suggest in the subtitle. And I also want to ask you to talk on, there's a point you frequently repeat in the book that reminds readers, quote, death makes a statement about each of us. You are not too important to die. That is a heavy reflection. And (laughs) (laughs) one that can make us uncomfortable when we hear it, but, but like it or not, it's true for everyone. Can you offer a high-level overview explaining what exactly is the weight of death's challenge to the core of our identity? A couple of layers to this that I think are important to note. One that just shows how unnatural death is from a biblical perspective, and then one that shows how death exposes our sin from a biblical perspective. So our identity involves the dignity that God has given to us as image bearers. And one of the most beautiful statements about who we are that the Bible gives us comes in Genesis 1, where God is making everything that it is, that is. He's calling it all good. And then at the top of it, he makes man and woman in his image and calls them very good. That gives us a kind of dignity that we can we can actually see in ourselves. We're not always the best at seeing it in other people mm-hmm. and respecting it where we see it. But there is something in us that seems just unerasable. Um, that recognizes that there's something unique about human life, something beautiful and powerful about it. That's why we treat the death of humans, the killing of humans differently than the killing of cockroaches, because we think that they exist on a different level, a different kind of being that has been given a, a different kind of dignity. And the Bible says, yeah, that is absolutely true. Your identity involves that dignity. And yet the Bible also says that we have chosen to claim that dignity as our own possession rather than as a statement God has made over us by his grace because he chose to, not because there was anything in us before he put it there that deserves that kind of statement. Mm -hmm. 
So when we when we choose to claim our dignity as our own, to assert it as our own rather than receive it as his gift, we put ourselves into God's place. And sin comes as a kind of repositioning of ourselves at the center of the universe rather than recognizing God's place at the center of it. What that looks like in life is that we all tend to live as if we're the, the kind of lead character in the history of the world. We know there are other characters. We know there are other people. But just by default, I think, we tend to live like those characters prop up our lead. We define them by how they come into our lives. So, you know, I know that my wife has a has an independent identity for mine. And, you know, Lord willing, as we grow in our marriage and our relationship deepens year after year, I'm getting better and better at, about uh, affirming that and seeing it and not assuming that, that she exists to serve me. But my first knowledge of her is as my wife. That's who she is to me, right? Mm-hmm. She's defined by how she relates to me. Same for my kids, same for the place where I live. Nashville exists, of course, a couple hundred years before I ever came along. But to me, it's my home. It's my town. It's where I live and work. And you, know, you go on down the line, the Gulf Coast, where I've spent a couple of days over the holiday break, that exists as my lifelong vacation spot. Of course, it has a different existence from that. And when I'm being rational about it, I can say that it's other things to other people. And was here long before me and be here long after me. But but my experience of the world, I'm at the center of it. And these things just come into my experience and get their their identity from me. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a kind of prideful posture that death exposes for what it is. Because what death says is that actually, you know, Matt, you're, you're not really the center of the world. The world will continue to spin long after you're gone. And not only are you not the center of the world, but the reality is, and here's the heaviness, that in a hundred years time, no one is going to even remember who you were. It struck me at one point when I was working on the book that I was riding the car with one of my kids and he'd asked me what my granddad's dad's name was. This was not somebody I ever met. wasn't part of my life. Mm-hmm. But my granddad was a huge part of my life. And his dad was a huge part of his life. And I couldn't even come up with this man's first name. Yeah. And that was just a couple generations back. So then I start to scope this out and think, all right, well, here my son is precious to me and hopefully I am to him. We're crucial in one another's lives. But his own grandkids, who hopefully will be close to him too, won't even necessarily be able to remember my name. <laughs> well, that's a that not much not even remember my name, much less like who I am, what I love, what I'm into, who's important to me, uh, what books are my favorites. I mean, all the things that make up kind of me are going to be gone in time. So death tells me, Matt, you are not the lead character in this story. That's not easy to hear, but it certainly sets us up for some sweet news on the other side of it because there's something a lot better than being the center of the world that the Bible offers to us. It offers us a relationship with the one who is actually at the center of it all and who will remember us in Christ and give us a life that's justified by his gift, not because we did anything to earn it. Hopefully what's clear here is that death awareness can sometimes be the bitter pill that you take to prepare you for the you know, the sweet drink afterwards. It's to, to level you so that the gospel can build you back up again, to clear away the rocks that might otherwise keep the seeds of the gospel from going deep into your heart. you got to have bad news before the good news seems good. Well, I really appreciated the way you set out to guide the reader through the gospel hope of this grim 
problem of death, writing that, quote, death says you are less important than you've ever allowed yourself to believe. The gospel says you are far more loved than you ever imagined. Will you unpack that statement for us and explain how a relationship with Jesus Christ helps us to endure the awful realities of death with hope? That's a statement that I'm recasting from a very familiar passage in a book by Tim Keller. I think if I remember right, he was even recasting it from somebody else that, that had given it to him. So it's it's been around. Certainly the core of it is not mine, but I, I tried to use it to capture, use a familiar framing to sort of capture the unique point of this chapter, which is what I've just been talking about, that even though our in, in our flesh, our tendency is to see ourselves at the center of everything. Death tells another story that the world doesn't need us. It won't even remember us. We are not its center. And that means we are less important than we have ever imagined, than what in our subconscious we have always assumed. But in the gospel, we have this incredible, like unprecedented and inexplicable goodness offered to us in Christ, whereby God takes people who are not essential on their own, and who actually you know, have deserved the death that he punishes them with by trying to swap places with him and gives his own son for them so that they cannot perish but have eternal life. In the gospel, we experience a love that doesn't make sense based on who we are on our own, because who we are is dispensable. Death tells us that. That's true. And yet, look how precious God's love makes us to him for reasons that are all his own. Unfortunately, I think sometimes one of the things that keeps us from connecting with the deep beauty of the gospel is that it can seem like obvious to us. Well, of course God loves us. As long as we're the center of the world, then God is another one of those prop-up characters who comes into our story. His role is to save us. His role is to love us. That's who he is to us, to the story that ultimately centers on us. But when death decenters us from the world, and when we recognize, oh, no, actually God and his glory, that's at the heart of it all. Then all of a sudden, it shocks us when we realize that this God who doesn't need us, this God whom we've neglected and even opposed, would invest even the life of his own son to bring us home. That is unbelievable. But you only see it for the beauty that it is when you've seen who you really are apart from it. What I'm trying to argue in the book, in this chapter and in, in several other chapters, is that death awareness, as depressing as it is, is actually the key to understanding just how beautiful the gospel is. That living with a deeper, more everyday appreciation for what we've been offered in Christ depends on knowing why we needed him in the first place. So if we can start to recognize the symptoms of our need in our daily life, then we can start to recognize, oh, here's his relevance again. Here's what he really does offer me every day. You present a really compelling observation when you introduce readers to Greg Easterbrook's book, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse, citing that while most Americans joy a quality of life that would have been unimaginable for even the wealthiest Americans 200 years ago, clinical depression has been rising in eerie synchronization with rising prosperity. Or, in other words, happiness has not risen in tandem with progress. Yep. So what does this finding have to say about the effects of death on the things we hope to enjoy, accomplish, and acquire? What we're learning as our prosperity grows like this is that the things we thought would make us happy really won't make us happy. And that's allowing us to see that, oh, there's a, there's a deeper reason why that's true. 
The reason that these things could never make us happy is that they can't stand up to the thing that really makes us sad. As long as there's prosperity still out there to be had, as something to, to strive for, then there's this possibility that if I got what I think would make me happy, I actually would be happy. Maybe the reason I'm not happy is that I don't have it yet. And that tends to be the way that most of us who are kind of the first half of our lives with most of the, the big building blocks of a normal longed for life still out in front of us, still cobbling those together. It tends to be how we think and live. That tomorrow is our biggest friend, our greatest friend. You know, that that's when we'll we'll get there. Mm-hmm. But what Easter book is showing us is really just another version of what the book of Ecclesiastes shows us in the scriptures. That it's really those who do arrive, who climb that ladder and actually get to the top of it, who look at what their life includes and realize they have everything they hoped for that are able to recognize that how what they wanted wasn't really what they wanted to begin with. Mm. That actually death is going to take away everything that they thought could give them stability and significance in this world. That over time, little by little, in ways large and small, we're not actually stockpiling in this life, but spending down what we have. And prosperity can pull back the veil on that truth in a way that is unique and powerful. Now in Ecclesiastes, is, is unique in the scriptures in, in some ways because the guy who wrote it actually got there. You know, he he was the 1% of his time and then some, mm-hmm. and most people didn't get there. One of the things Easter book's book shows is that, I mean, most people in the modern West, and his book is about America, so most, most people in America, in America are living with a kind of prosperity that even the guy who wrote Ecclesiastes couldn't have imagined. <laughs> so we are much more living in his world than not. And so we're experiencing what he experienced, the futility of all these things to make us happy. And what I'm arguing in that chapter is that what makes them futile is that they can't stand up to death. They try, but they can't. While we don't have time to discuss all of the profound points you make in this book, I do think it's important for us to point out the elephant in the room. We've been talking about this for, I don't know, 35 minutes or so, and it's a very hard topic to discuss. It's a hard topic to listen to people discussing it. I mean, people listening might just feel like there's this weight on them after having heard all the various insights that you shared. And it can be easy for us to remember death and just begin to feel crushed under its sorrowful weight. You know, there's inevitable loss coming our way. And now perhaps more than ever, because of this conversation, we're more sensitive to it. Someone listening might be tempted to wonder if I really begin to remember death on a daily basis, mm-hmm. how can I honestly allow myself to really enjoy anything? And you propose additional questions in the book that are along these lines, such as, quote, yeah. how do we live when we know that the more we love these things, the more it will hurt for us to lose them? And is there any alternative to heartbreak on one hand and stoic detachment on the other? So how would you suggest our listeners begin to reconcile these questions Questions through a biblical worldview? Well, I think it's difficult work to do because it is heavy. I mean, it just is. It's the thing that none of us can escape and that does cast a cloud over even the most beautiful and precious things about our lives. So I don't want to soft pedal that. I try hard in the book to, to say the kind of perspective I'm calling you to will mean bringing sorrow into your life willingly. Because I'm, what I'm calling for is to open your eyes to what's happening and not try to close them. And to accept the grief that comes from that kind of awareness, 
the reason that I think we can go there as Christians rather than live in denial is that every time we experience some of death's sting, we're experiencing the relevance of Jesus' victory. So there is no downside, no dark side of life in the world, life under the sun, that Christ's light can't penetrate. So there's no reason to avoid looking at it. We see him through it. The quote that you mentioned was, is there any alternative to just despair or detachment? And I don't think there is if you don't have Christ. I don't know of one. And I haven't read any philosopher out there who who has proposed one. Mm -hmm. I think that it makes more sense to cope through denial, to pretending, or just through breaking your attachment to things in this world and, and denying the goodness and beauty of it all. I think both of those things are to live lies, either to, to lie about the seriousness of death or to lie about the beauty and goodness of the world. And both of those forms of denial are, are not going to serve you well, not going to be sustainable. But I think Jesus opens up a third way where in between that we can be honest Yes, death is terrible. It is taking away what I love in this world. And yes, that's so terrible because what I love in this world is really, really good. It's beautiful. It is give is given to me by God. I can acknowledge both of those things because I have Christ and his promise of victory over the grave. And what that victory promises is that he can restore and even consummate every trace of goodness and beauty that I've ever enjoyed, however temporary and fleeting in this life. That opens up a new way of thinking about these good things that time is going to take away from us. We get to think about them not as not as the thing itself, but as appetizers preparing us for the feast. Mm. Of course, the appetizers aren't meant to satisfy your hunger. They couldn't. That's not their role to play. It's actually to whet your appetite. So if we know that Christ has prepared for us the banquet, you know, a feast of joy and satisfaction that'll go on forever, then we can accept these little tastes along the way, knowing they're not going to last, knowing that it'll hurt us when they're gone. We can accept them for what they are and not need them to be more than they are. That doesn't mean it won't hurt. It doesn't mean there's no not grief um, in coming to the last bite, if you will, of something that was wonderful. But it means that that grief doesn't have to define our experience of the world. And in fact, underneath it all, the main thing I'm trying to encourage people with in this book is that not only does the grief not have to define our experience of this world, it can actually become a tool that we use for connecting to Jesus in a deeper way than we ever had before. By being honest, by grieving fully, we are preparing our hearts to rest in Him and to long for what He offers us. And if we're denying the context in which His coming makes sense, the reality of death and the grip it has on us, then we're denying something about Him and His work that we're not going to be able to connect with. I'm so thankful that you did write this book. And like I mentioned in the last question, I wish we could just continue on and on and on. If you are interested in learning more about this topic, I would highly suggest go to the show notes, click the link. You will find information about Matt's book and you'd be able to order it there. But I would really encourage you to, to purchase a copy of it and go through it yourself or with a friend because this is so valuable and it, it's wisdom. You know, it's wisdom to reflect yeah. upon death in a way that can reconcile the horrendous effects with the hope of Christ's gospel and the good news and ultimate redemption and resurrection. We've got time for one more question. I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest on the show to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. Mm -hmm. There may be someone listening to this episode who has never considered death the way we have today. Perhaps they've lived with a fear of death or they've experienced past traumas related to death. And so they've just simply done all they can to avoid talking about the 
matter altogether. What would you say to this person to encourage them to trust Christ with their fears and to remember death with assurance and hope? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that I wish we could talk one-on-one. That'd be a lot better. And I really enjoy it and appreciate the chance to, to encourage you. But I'll do my best here in this forum. I would say that whether you're experiencing the grief that death brings because you've lost someone close to you or because you're facing a terminal diagnosis yourself right now or because you just finished up a sweet holiday season and realized that your kids are never going to be that age again on Christmas morning, whatever extent you're experiencing the grief of, of death and the stranglehold it has on our life in this world, you're experiencing the relevance of Jesus to your life. So you can honestly acknowledge it. You can talk to your friends about it. You can bring that grief into your relationship with them if they know Christ, because ultimately what you're doing is providing a window into why you need Jesus so badly. And he's up to that challenge. He can overcome the grief that you're living with right now. And that means that being honest about the grief, seeing it for what it is, is a fantastic way to be honest about Jesus and to see him for who he is. So... You can go there as long as you go there with him. And I'd encourage you to do it. Well, thank you for those encouraging words. I want to, again, just commend your book to our listeners and really encourage them to purchase a copy for themselves to dive deeper into this topic. And if there is someone, Matt, who is hearing you talk today and they say, gosh, I'd really love to learn more about Matt and what his ministry is, is there somewhere online where they can go to find perhaps your sermons or any other content that you've produced? Uh, you know, not not a huge online footprint and no social media accounts to plug, I'm afraid. But I, I do have, uh, you know, our pastor church, Trinity Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and we have a podcast where my sermons and sermons of other pastors at our church will show up. TrinityNashville.org will get you to that place and, and all the content there. Awesome. And then every now and then I do write for a couple of organizations online that I, that I value a lot and that give me a chance to do that. Nine Marks Ministries has been a huge help to me in my work, and sometimes I'll, I'll post there. The Gospel Coalition has been a huge in, encouragement to me, and I write for them some. They actually are behind the book that I wrote. So those are just a couple examples besides the book itself. Great. Well, I will be sure to link to those places, those websites that you've contributed articles to, so that it can just be easier for the readers to connect and read more of your work or even listen to your sermons. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you've got a busy schedule, but this conversation I think is just so important. And so I'm really just so thankful to the Lord that I had the opportunity to chat with you about it and to offer it to our listeners. It was my pleasure. It means a lot to me that you asked me. Thanks, Christine. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project. 